The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Enterprise first season episode, Oasis. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Uh, Father Corey is on an await team, so it's just going to be Jimmy and I today, <laughs> but Father Corey will be back. Uh, folks, remember to like The Secrets of Star Trek on Facebook, where we're at facebook.com slash Media. Retweet us on Twitter, where we're at SQPN, and leave us comments wherever you find us. We love to hear from you, and this episode we have some great listener feedback uh, that's based on the comments people leave behind where, where they find us online, so please do so. I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you are sure to enjoy called The Secrets of Star Wars. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Star Wars. So, uh, but this time we're talking about Oasis. And Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what happens? This week, a space trader tells Captain Archer and the gang about a haunted spaceship that's crashed on a planet that they can use for spare parts. When they get there, they find the spaceship, and it does appear to be haunted. Despite the fact there are no detectable life signs, the ship has a crew. They claim that they were attacked above the planet three years ago, crashed, and have been hiding out ever since. But they seem strangely hesitant to accept the Enterprise's offer of rescue, or to at least help the ship with repairs. But they do eventually accept the repair help. The mystery deepens as Enterprise discovers evidence that they actually crashed 22 years ago, and they weren't attacked but had an accident. Also, their hydroponics bay isn't nearly big enough to provide food for all the crew. Eventually, it emerges that 22 years ago, the ship had an accident in an ion storm and crashed. The only survivors were the ship's engineer and his daughter, and when he discovered he couldn't repair the ship, the engineer holographically recreated the crew to provide companionship. He doesn't want to leave the planet, but Trip Tucker and the gang convince him his daughter needs a better, broader life. So they give him the parts he needs, and he uses his emergency holographic crew to make repairs. The end. Yeah, it makes me wonder, like, I know we've had the doctor before this, the emergency medical hologram, but I wonder mm-hmm. if this inspired a little bit of the Picard season two, season one and two. Uh, with uh, Rios's ship, Rios's ships, yes, yeah. His his holographic crew was so underused. It was a neat concept they introduced in season one, and then they basically abandoned it in season two. I know, I know, like like so much unfulfilled promise. Well, speaking of Star Trek Picard, uh, one of the guest stars from season two uh, or recurring characters in season two was uh, Annie Wershing, who has her very first. Not only her first guest appearance on Star Trek, but her very first TV role in this episode. Mm. Uh, she plays she, the, uh, the the daughter, character. Liana. Yeah, she was uh, she was just twenty four, and uh, mm-hmm. as we mentioned before, she sadly she passed away from an illness recently. Uh, oh. So so may she rest in peace. But, Who did uh, she play in Picard? She was the Borg Queen. Oh, okay. Yeah. So <laughs> under all the makeup, it was it's hard mm-hmm. to, <laughs> to the recognize season two it. Borg Queen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, it. You know, she, she, I think she also did at least one more appearance in in Star Trek, but I'm not sure. I didn't look it up. 
but another prominent guest star in this one that we all recognize is Rene mm-hmm. Aubergenois, who played Odo in D- Deep Space Nine, plays yep. her dad in this one. With much less makeup on. <laughs> I'm sure that was much more pleasant for him <laughs> to be in this yeah. one. <laughs> I thought his his character is a little, I, well, at least until the very end, his character felt wasted to me. Yeah. Because he's not prominent in the episode. It's just, why have they bothered putting Rene Aubergenois here? And and then in the last five minutes, he becomes pivotal, and mm-hmm. that kind of redeems it. But like, if I if you're gonna haul Rene Aubergenois on screen, I want to see him doing stuff. You right. know, I I don't want to. Oh, he suddenly becomes relevant in the last five minutes. I mean, they should have built him up more, given him a more prominent role in most of the episode. But he's in the background. I know if you're gonna bring a prominent character from a previous series, a star from one of the previous Star Trek series, you got to give him something to do. You got to like make it yeah. more than just him showing up and wandering around. It, it'd be like having George Decay or Walter Koenig in the background of another <laughs> series playing another character for 40 minutes, and then suddenly he becomes relevant. Well, and it also kind of gives the story away a little bit because you know that they're not going to put – Rene Aubergenois in this episode, unless he's important, and yeah. he, he's at for most again for most of it, he's no more important than any of the other holograms. We you, you know that we eventually figured out they're holograms. So yeah, it it, it was I think it was a bit of a, a a mistake. And they if they wanted to have him in a series in a you know in in an Enterprise episode, they might they would they should have found something different from to do that would have taken advantage of his skills and yeah. uh, his, his rec- recognizability with the audience. This, this episode to my mind was imminently forgettable as illustrated by the fact I didn't remember it. <laughs> Same here. <And> so <laughs> it's, it's, it's not good. It's not so good. You remember it. It's not so bad. You remember it. It's kind of so bland. You don't remember it. And I don't have, I have almost no notes on this. Yeah. So this may be a short <laughs> one for that reason. Well, but yeah. it, it's not unpleasant. It's just there. You know, you got this slowly unfolding mystery. You got lots of little clues being dropped. Um, as soon as they found, so at one point they find as they're gathering evidence that there's a, an actual mystery here. The uh, they find an escape pod in orbit, mm-hmm. and the. When they open the escape pod, it's got a dead guy in it, and Trip Tucker says, oh, that's so-and-so. I just saw him on the planet an hour ago. And he's referring to another background character that has not been built up or named on screen in any way. I couldn't figure out which one it was supposed to be. (laughs) Yeah, until later when he meets the hologram of the guy and says, I just saw your body an hour up on the ship. You want to explain that to me? But and that's really the first time this guy is ever singled out. Yeah. So they could have written that better, but by giving the guy something to do and giving him a name before we see his body, you know, something to call attention to him, so we'll recognize him as opposed yeah. to every other background character. <laughs> but then, as soon as they open up the pod and it's got a body in it, and Trip says, "Oh, I know that guy." I said, "Holographic people." Right. You know. And and so that was like at the halfway mark, and so I'm waiting for the holographic reveal for the rest of the episode, and it eventually comes. Right. Well, because it's not the first time they've done something like this in Star Trek. In fact, this story recycles so many elements. Like, it's the cage with Vina. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, uh, there are other uh, episodes of the first season of Enterprise with a haunted ship 
and you know, uh, it trip falling for a girl, although a little creepy. She's a little young for him, but um, although I do like to Paul calling him out. <laughs> that yeah. was well. That was I good. mean, if she's twenty four, I mean, you know, they're both consenting adults. I guess. Uh, well, I, I guess I don't know how old Trip is, but uh, he, he's maybe he's not that old. Um, but uh, so the, it recycles so many even story elements. Even if he's forty, I don't care. <laughs> once once the person is is into their mid twenties, their brain is fully formed. They can make their own decisions. Okay, okay, all right. I'm the you know doing the dad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but in but in the, the my main point is is they've recycled so many bits of story that it does get lost in the memory a bit because it's doesn't quite stand out uh, from the other ones. And, yeah. So um, I I did think. Um, the the horse trading with the alien scene over dinner that was fun that yeah. was a little bit fun because um, apparently they they sent out the enterprise without with, with the expectation that they would trade for what they needed for supplies out there uh, which I think is an interesting idea I got the impression that they I mean they'll they'll trade because it's part of their first contact mission. Mm-hmm. But um, I got the impression that they'd sustained more damage than anticipated, and thus they were in need of repar- of parts and were too far from home. I suppose, although that I mean that's kind of the idea is, is when you get out there, if you if you if you get damaged, because you know presumably in this exploration things will happen, you're going to need to find sources. It reminds me a lot of um, stories from the Age of Sail here on Earth, where mm-hmm. you know the ships would sail British, you know the British Empire sa- ships would sail to the South Pacific, and if they had a broken mast or needed water or food, whatever they would, they'd have to find it there and trade for it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the um, another element of the discussion is this, this one of the constraints that they put on Enterprise the series is this idea that. This Enterprise is not the biggest, baddest ship in the quadrant, like all the other Enterprises essentially, mm-hmm. you know, claim to be. Uh, they they have to be more careful. They're more cautious. They're the new guy in the block, and that's one of the things I liked about Enterprise as a series is that constraint, which is different from so much else that we've seen mm-hmm. in Star Trek before. So uh, that I think that got brought out in this in that scene uh, there. Yeah, I I wish they had I've I've read some of the behind the scenes stuff about this series. And they had I mean, the series was fundamentally flawed from the beginning because they didn't realize what the story, the story they needed to tell was. Mm-hmm. They didn't need to give us a gee whiz we're the new kids on the block. Let's go explore story. They needed to give us the founding of the federation. Right. And they they didn't realize that until the very end, and then they botched it. Um, but even given that, they they had ideas that would have been much better than what they did. One of the things that they had initially proposed was, okay, we're going to go out in the first season, we're going to start exploring, and we're the ship the ship is going to get knocked around like crazy, and they're going to barely limp back to Earth in the season finale and need repairs. Mm -hmm. And that would have been much more interesting, you know, watching them patch together an increasingly deteriorating ship. I mean, we, Ron Moore later did that after this series on Battlestar Galactica. Right. Where you watch the Galactica get progressively worse until by the time you get to the season finale, it is literally falling apart and is making its last possible jump ever. 
Right. And um, and ha- watching the Enterprise do that would be much more interesting than what they actually did. But then when they got into writing the episodes, they lost track of that season arc. And they were just scrambling to get enough scripts to fill airtime that they didn't, they weren't able to execute any larger overarching goals. Mm, yeah. That is too bad. It's so much unfulfilled potential. Um, I, I, the one thing with the, uh, the just to, to cap off the horse trading with the uh, alien there, mm-hmm. um, was the. Damar is his name, which is also distracting because. Wait, I just invested seven years watching Deep Space Nine, which has a major character named Damar. <laughs> Gildamar, yeah, exactly. Um, Remember, he, he became leader of the Cardassian Empire for a while. Right, right. Use, reusing the name like that, yeah, that is unfortunate. But the the idea that the... I suppose it's a willing suspension of disbelief, but the whole idea that alien food would, you know, would be... Does alien hot pepper have capsaicin in it too? You know that's uh, you know that idea, and that aliens would like coffee, the taste of coffee. Um, I, maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. I don't have too much of a problem with that, I, and this is something I've thought about because back in the '90s there was a rumor, you know, that the the that at Area 51 they had an extraterrestrial biological entity who liked strawberry ice cream. <laughs> and and that was that was something that was laughed at but i thought about it, it's like no if their biochemistry is remotely similar to ours they're going to they're going to use sugars and mm-hmm. now they might or might not be able to digest the sugars we have on earth like here on earth all of the all of the sugars have you can either have a left or right chirality which has to do with the direction the molecule rotates if mm-hmm. you know the structural rotation of it and um, if memory serves on Earth, all sugars are right-handed. And so that's what we can digest. We can make glucose out of that. And, mm-hmm. and we're going to be attracted to sugars because it's a source of energy and we're omnivores. Um, you know, we're, if we were cats, we wouldn't really be able to digest it. We'd be obligate carnivores. And, and that's why cats don't care about sweet things because they don't, they don't digest them. They don't have the taste receptors to to detect sweetness. So if you mm. offer a cat something sweet, it doesn't perceive it as sweet. It perceives it as blah. It's just nothing to it. Mm. Um, but humans and uh, canines are omnivores and can eat sh- plants, including sugars. And so we have taste receptors for sugars, and we like sweet things. And if you are an omnivore... You are probably going to have sugars. They may not be right-handed sugars mm-hmm. like we have on Earth. Uh, so, if like if you're a human, you can digest right-handed sugars. If you go to a planet that has left-handed sugars in its vegetation, it'll taste sweet and it won't hurt you, but you can't digest it. So mm. it's like planet of the diet foods, <laughs> and um, and I plan to use that in a story someday, maybe. <laughs> But it it actually, you know, strawberry ice cream, that's principally sugars and fats. Fats are flavor enhancers because they trap they trap molecules for taste. Mm-hmm. So um so that's what makes the fat in ice cream makes it taste sweeter and amplifies like if you've got strawberry flavoring in it, it's gonna amplify the strawberry flavor. So it's an intensified sweet food and 
Can I imagine an alien like liking intense intensified sweetness? Absolutely, I can imagine that. Their biochemistry would, if they're an omnivore, they would find that attractive too. That's possible. Although, as I think about it, there are plenty of humans who can't digest uh, various lactose, lactose, and other things like that. So, yeah, uh, yeah, the ability to to digest lactose is a recent evolutionary development in humans. Right. All mammals are capable of digesting lactose or eating milk when they're infants. Mm-hmm. But then, because they get weaned by their mamas, most mammals then lose the ability to digest lactose in adulthood because those genes become inactive as you're not getting it anymore, so yep. that, gene, that gene can turn off. But since humans began the agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago and started domesticating sheep and goats and cows, all of which produce milk, various populations of humans began continuing to drink milk beyond infanthood and have – and a recent evolutionary development is various populations, including some on each continent but primarily in Europe – European humans, humans of European ancestry, basically all, almost all, will still have the uh, active gene to digest lactose into adulthood. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, it would be an interesting. It's it's always interesting to me, like in the in Star Trek, especially they don't they don't have the time to go into it, but the idea that they can just eat whatever wherever, yeah, you know, that was something. There's a bunch of eating in this episode. We have the Mm -hmm. initial scene with Damar, then. Uh, Liana, the girl, brings Trip some some uh, kind of squash <laughs> or something, and then later he meets her in the mess hall, and she's eating ice cream. Right, and and so we've got a lot of eating, and I just kept wanting someone to whip out a scanner, yeah, real quick. Just let let me do a second check, make sure this is okay with my biochemistry. <laughs> exactly. Um, I guess we're meant to infer that they do that off screen or something, and they're just not taking the time to show it to us. But mm-hmm. I would rather see it, yeah, you know, or at least a little test strip they can dip in it, and if it turns the wrong color, it's like, oh, I better not eat this. <laughs> it you could know. be poisonous acid. It could be anything. You yeah, know? Like, yeah. But apropos of ice cream, if you wanted to say that uh, Damar or Liana didn't have the gene to digest lactose and they're going to have irritable <laughs> sensations afterwards. Yes, nice. I'd be I'd be I'd be fine with that, but that wouldn't mean they wouldn't find it tastes good. Yes. Because even people who are lactose intolerant, they still find ice cream tastes good. <laughs> yes, they do. They just need to take some <laughs> lactase pills before they can have it. Yep, yep. Uh you know, one Nice treatment here is I feel like Mayweather gets something gets a little bit of a better treatment than he often does in this mm-hmm. one. So they they've got this ship that they've been told has been crashed that would be a good source for them for salvage, and so they they go to this planet and they find it there intact. And Mayweather's like, you know, maybe we shouldn't go down there and you know be poking around. And they kind of mock him a little bit, but. It, you know, let's remember. Well, because he's raised in this space freighter culture and is perceived as superstitious. And Archer right. even alludes to one of your ghost stories at one point. And he's like, right. um, no, uh, th- there's an apparently okay ship that everyone is dead on. Yes. Maybe there's something dangerous down there. Or we should respect it because it's somebody's re- last resting place. You know, as someone who was raised in a spacefaring society culture you know uh, that 
they would probably recognize these that this sort of thing as being need to be respected. Maybe, but I would tend to go the other way and say if you're from a spacefaring culture where you are on the edge of survival a yeah. lot of the time, you're gonna you're gonna strip those ships. I suppose. I suppose. Yeah. I, I may, or or at least you would say you know before we strip it, we need to be you know respectful a, of the have dead. A pr- have a prayer service or something. Yeah. 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 So I did like the fact that he he did get that moment there. Mm-hmm. Um, I also thought it was funny how the crew was all bluster and joking about ghosts while they were on the Enterprise until they get down there. And they then they're all like jumping at shadows and stuff, mm-hmm. which I thought was like, yeah, yeah, we, we're all bluster until we're in the middle of a ghost situation. Um, except for to Paul, who because apparently Vulcans don't imagine things and don't get the creeps. Yeah, and they don't have emotions either. So yeah, yeah, I'm I'm calling uh, baloney on that one. Uh, yeah, the uh, you know Vulcans could be afraid of you know can they could certainly imagine things because if they can't mm-hmm. imagine things, they're not very yeah. good scientists for one thing. But also, yeah, they fear like do they let fear control them? Obviously not. But there's still things you'd be afraid of. Otherwise, you're not very good at surviving. Yeah, uh, yeah. So. Um, these are just more of the lies Vulcans tell themselves. <laughs> yes, they tell themselves and others. Uh, so I, I alluded to the fact that uh, at one point when they've met Liana and Trips is kind of gaga to the pretty girl, um, T'Pol reminds Tucker of the time he got pregnant by the Zerillian engineer, uh, and he has his habit of finding cute aliens that he flirts with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like that she avoided the word pregnant. In the writing, because yeah. that would have added. Instead, she says, "You ended up carrying her child." Right, right. Because of the the unique physiology, implants the egg in the male. I think is what, yeah. the, what it was, if, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, she she calls him on it, which is good because he's kind of Kirkish in the series. You know, he's finding a, an alien girl in every port, um, and uh, and there is some outrageous flirting between Tucker and Liana, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and Liana is frankly likable. I, yes. I thought I thought the actress Annie Wershing did a good job. She made this character likable and interesting. You know, I thought it, the character was hampered a little bit by the writing and all the secrecy they're needing to keep from giving it all away as soon as they do. Mm-hmm. But uh, but in terms of fundamental performance, it's like she seemed likable to me. I liked her. Yeah. Yes, I did too. Yeah. Uh- yeah, there was there was there was a possibilities for that character that we didn't get, you know, as deep as and maybe I think in some ways she salvaged the episode by mm-hmm. by the character um, because it could be it could have been a very bland paint by numbers sort of the pretty Ill, innocent alien girl, but she added a little bit of extra to that character. I think that was good. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing one thing yeah. I didn't didn't like in this is the crashed spaceship thing. Because mm-hmm. when and they when when they first get in it, within a few minutes, Trip is like, "There's not much wrong with this ship. We could get this flying." And I'm going, "Yeah, have you seen the external shots they gave us? This thing <laughs> is sitting in a field of plants. Where's the debris trail? Yeah, if this is a crash landing, I mean, at a minimum, there's gonna if, even if the ship didn't come apart in the crash." It's going to carve a trail. Have you ever seen what happens when an air when an aircraft crashes? It is it is even if even if you've got a super supremely strong duranium one that's not going to come apart, it's going to dent the ground. Yeah. Well, 22 looks, years, but 
Yeah. Yeah, but still, there should be. They should have, for the sake of communicating the crash to the audience. Yeah. They if it and if it had been twenty two years with vegetation growing, then the vegetation would have covered the ship too. Right. Um, they they should have shown us, you know, this thing carved a path onto the ground, whereas it looks like it didn't crash at all. It looks like it just sat down, right? Um, vertically with vertical takeoff and landing without even a runway. And so they should have shown us, should have done something to communicate crash visually, and they didn't. Mm, that's true, right? I mean, yeah, you can explain away all the all the different all the reasons why they didn't do it, but the fact is, is from a dramatic storytelling point of view, they should have shown us that that it was a crashed ship. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, Reed doing his job finds all the holes in the story that uh, uh, Liana has been telling, um, including you know, no evidence of being shot at, no reason. There's no reason that they shouldn't have called for help. The the lack of the enough food to feed yeah. everyone. The the lack of call for help is something that I think they could have done a little more with because they it's it's fair for the human crew to point out it's been three years whoever attacked them is going to have moved on yeah and they can they should they should call for help and get some backup from their own people um, but and and they never really explain why they don't. Because yeah. now we know there's no – they were never attacked. So why didn't – when they crashed, why didn't they call for help? I mean, you can argue it's because Rene Aubergenois was guilty as an engineer. But really, that's hard to believe. And that's the reason you condemn your your young daughter to a life of solitude on an alien planet? Yeah, yeah. that that's hard to believe. But what they could have done is – when they're still believing the crash story is – Someone can point out, okay, it's been three years. They should have sent a distress call by now. Someone else, maybe to Paul, points out, do not assume all species think like humans. It could be that this species has an extra sense of caution, that they're not willing to take the risk. They're not as risk tolerant as you are. And that's why they haven't risked sending a message. Or it could be that they know the species that attacked them are like trapdoor spiders mm-hmm. and will sit out there and wait and wait and wait and wait until they get a signal and then they'll spring into action. So it could be a difference in the psychology of these aliens or the psychology of the aliens who attacked them or both. Right. And that would have been a reasonable explanation for why they haven't sent a distress signal. And it would have made for an interesting discussion on the show that could point out the differences between human psychology and alien psychologies. Right. I mean, if it were Klingons, Klingons wouldn't send a distress signal because it's dishonorable. It shows weakness or, you know, it could be anything. But, yeah, yeah, it would have been nice to see that. Um, The uh, I did like Tucker when – Archer calls in Tucker to talk about Liana and the mm-hmm. crew. Uh, Tucker gets very defensive at first because yeah, guilty Archer's, conscience much. <laughs> Ar- Archer says, I, I hear you've been spending a lot of time with Liana. And it's like, I've been a perfect gentleman, sir. It's like, you know, this wasn't about that. We were just wanting to know, have you seen her do anything strange? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do like them calling him out on that. Uh, he, mm-hmm. he knows what he's doing is right in the line. Well, after <laughs> getting pregnant from an alien, you would be a little sensitive on that subject. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh so so we do find out that they crash because Ezral uh, that's the Rene Aubergine's character. Ezral 
left his post during the crisis, the accident, um, to save his baby daughter, who was in a part of the ship that was going to be exposed or, you know, that she was going to die. Going to be destroyed, even though we never see this part of the ship and there's no evidence of of it being yep. destroyed. And in fact, he could have been wrong that she was that she was in danger, but he he left his post regardless and has determined that him leaving his post was the reason the ship crashed. Whether right or wrong, that's his his own conscience tells him that he, yeah. that was the reason. Meanwhile, Liana is blaming herself. It's all because of me. He went to rescue me, and that's why everybody died. So, right. No, even if that were true, it would all be him, not you. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, not not logical, but you know, understandable that you would would do that. So we have this reason why he he didn't reach out. We talked about that, like why he didn't send a distress signal, or and why. But we, but with, there's also why doesn't he want to go now? And basically. He says, because this is our home now and we're comfortable here. Yeah, I mean, and there was some logical questions like, well, what happens if Liana gets sick or, you know, has an accident? And are you going to have a holographic doctor? Which is a bit of a nice yeah, nod, nod. Voyager. Um, but, you know, which is a good point, because unless he has the knowledge, Ezreal has the knowledge to program into the doctor, he can't make a doctor uh, to, to, well, to be a hologram. But he, he may have, I mean, he's clearly got the ability to make simulacra and feed data into them. Mm-hmm. And so presumably their computer system has a medical database that he could feed into a simulacrum. That would be, yeah, that would be useful. Um, but yeah, the, this, it's and the it's, ongoing. It's not like they're exposed to a lot of infectious diseases. You <laughs> right. <know? laughs> so it, it, any problem they're going to encounter is going to be mechanical. You can deal with surgery. So the so the the sort of the overarching no pun intended <laughs> overarching question is uh, that's a good pun. This overarching question is you know do is it enough to live among virtual reality? You know, I mean that's a sort of a question well, of our de- day. It depends on who you are. Yeah. Um, now I have I have some ability to sympathize with Ezrol saying this is home now and I just want to stay here because I've seen people who have I have a family member I won't say who it is but I have a family and it's not me but I have a family member who experienced a tragedy at an unexpected point in life and then became clinically depressed and spent the rest of the rest of life living in one house mostly sitting on the couch watching court tv Mm. And and other family members would try to, you know, engage and get stuff done because if you're if you're if you're living in your house on the couch, you're not taking care of the place, mm-hmm. and it's going to degenerate over time. And so other family members would like, let's bring in a maid, you know, and things like that. Is no, don't want anybody here. And so I I have encountered people. Who, you know, especially late in life, may kind of lose the will to engage more broadly. And that could be the case for Ezreal, if especially if they made him a little older than he was. Although, again, he's an alien. Who knows, mm-hmm. you know, what their life cycle is. Um, they could, I mean, they could all be, you know, what was Kess's species? The uh, Oh, the Ocampa. 
the Ocampa. They could be yeah. like Ocampans, and he, he, you know, he could be in his last year of life, and he's five years old. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but in in any event, I could I could kind of sympathize with that perspective. But what is much harder, at least in any normal human culture, especially a Western culture, is sympathizing with, and my daughter gets to stay here with me and continue to live here after my death with no hope of being around other people. Right. Um, that just comes across as extremely selfish yeah. and is much harder to, to justify. So that's... That's a that's a problem. Once the once the true nature of what's going on is revealed, they Ezreal should have agreed more quickly than he did. Yeah, you know, to at least letting her go. What I think would have been even more fascinating, though, than what they do now in the first half of the episode before they find the escape pod. I because I don't remember this episode. I'm trying to figure out. Okay, so why are they being so resistant? I thought they might be political dissidents. Mm. You know that they the reason they don't want to go home is because home is a dystopian place, or they are they believe it to be a dystopian place, and they're like rebels who, rightly or wrongly, are alienated from their own society, and this is their way of getting away from it. Mm. And that I think I think that would have been interesting, but I'm okay with what they did with the hologram stuff. But then, even though okay, just give him some parts and let his holographic crew make the repairs. Why that? Okay, that doesn't help Enterprise. How about we get to strip the ship, and then we take you with us, and we can get you back home to your own society much faster than you could on your own, mm-hmm. and you don't have to rebuild the ship or anything like that. And then they, if if I were showrunner, what I would want to do is have them on the show for add a couple of new characters that we see for at least a few episodes until we get them back to their home, and mm-hmm. that also gives us a reason. It, it, it creates a driver for the story because we need to get these. We've had these people now. That gives us a goal as opposed to randomly wandering around each episode with no sense of what we're doing. We're going to these people's homes and they can serve as guides to help us encounter people on the way that we're going to meet. And we can do, we can do pre arrival anthropological interviews with them to understand their culture better. And then we can have an episode where we finally meet with their culture and hand them over and it can all end nicely. And we have a big mutual, you know, multi, you know, cross-cultural celebration. There's so much you could do there. That's better than just here are some parts, fix it with your crew. I suppose one of the reasons they wouldn't do that is they didn't want to do Neelix again. You know, because that's kind yeah, of but a little ne- bit like Neelix. Neither Neelix nor Liana are neither Ezreal nor Liana are Neelix. No, they're not. Thankfully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaking of uh, alien crew members that we don't see, we don't see Doctor Flox in this one at all. I don't think. Nope, he gets mentioned, but he gets no lines. So no royalties for you. Sorry, John Billingsley. <laughs> so, um, so they they do give them some parts. You know, instead of getting parts, they're giving parts. They're giving them help to rebuild. Um, Ezreal decides that his daughter deserves more. But the crew, the holographic crew is still there, still part of whatever. Um, 
and uh, they're going to make their way back home on their repaired ship. Although um, I, I jokingly put down, so on their way back home, does the, do they get captured by the Borg and Liana gets turned into the Borg Queen? <laughs> <laughs> In an alternate reality, maybe. Yes, that might, that might be it. You know, interestingly, there were two deleted scenes that the uh, Memory Alpha wiki mentions. Um, nothing fantastic but um mm-hmm. just a couple of extra bits of scenes where um t- let's see to paul and tucker on the discussion of like her being scared have an extended discussion of um fear as a primitive emotion and you know whether she's scared of heights or spiders and um she does say that uh one thing she was scared of was when she when she was she discovered the crew was preparing a going away party for that time when she was getting returned to the Vulcans. And mm-hmm. she found the idea somewhat frightening, which is kind of a um, funny thing. And then there was another one that was just um, when they first met the, the, the crew of the crash ship, there was an extended scene there. So nothing mm-hmm. too uh, you know, interesting got lost in that. And I, I, can, I can understand and sympathize her idea of finding a going away party frightening <laughs> because – I mean, you know, she's from a very emotionally reserved culture, and and appreciation for other people and affection or ex- and expressiveness are can be very different even in human cultures. I have a friend from a Southeast Asian culture who came to America for college, and she was in Oklahoma and um, and Arkansas, and she was in Arkansas at the time for college, and. She, it's Christmas, it's coming to be Christmas. She's thousands of miles from her home in Southeast Asia. It, she's going to get invited to a Christmas party. Mm-hmm. And she did, you know, because people in the South, it's like, oh, we've got this visitor here. They don't have any family. It's Christmas. Invite them over. <laughs> right. You know? So she gets invited to a Christmas party and she's, 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 dreading it partly because i mean she wants to be there but she knows that americans hug each other <laughs> and in her culture they don't hug yeah they're not huggers they're not demonstrative in that way they also don't say i love you to people it's given that you love your family members mm. and so they're not used to hearing things like that and it's like if you said it out loud what what's up with this are you fatally ill or something <laughs> And so she's at the Christmas party and the hostess is like going down the line of guests and giving everyone a big hug. And my friend is just waiting there, dreading the hug that is coming. (laughs) And eventually she gets the hug and it's like, okay, I'm so glad that's over. But (laughs) now she loves, uh, she, she loves how expressive Americans are. She loves giving and getting hugs and saying, I love you and all kinds of stuff like that. But not at the time. And so I can just imagine to Paul in that situation, if I go to this going away party, they are going to hug me and do things and sing in my honor. And (laughs) it's all emotional. So embarrassing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, your friend should have gone to school in New England. We're God's frozen people. We don't hug. (laughs) Uh huh. (laughs) So, uh, all right. So I think, uh, do you have any other notes on this episode before we wrap up? No, it's very forgettable. Okay. Very good. Uh, so I did promise some feedback. So let's get to that now. You did. Time I to did. pay up. I pay off my promises. And so our first promise, uh, first promise, our first feedback comes from Sandy, who sent this email, uh, who says, after listening to your podcasts on Picard, 
I just had to comment on Beverly Crusher. What the heck is wrong with her? She's an intelligent, educated 24th century woman, a doctor, and Starfleet officer. Why would she feel the need to keep her son a secret? Her reasons didn't just didn't make sense to me. On TNG, she was quite forceful and shared her contrary opinions with the captain and crew members many times. She was pretty outspoken on many occasions, including going against a whole scientific community to champion a Ferengi scientist. That Beverly wouldn't have kept a son secret. They could have come up with a different way to have Picard suddenly have a son. I really enjoyed this season of Picard and also enjoyed listening to your podcast. Thank you, Sandy. So I'm sympathetic to Sandy's perspective. I also found the characterization of Beverly Crusher as having had a secret son and not telling anybody about it problematic. Um, it, it does seem like it's out of character for her. I can try to retcon the situation and say, like, maybe they have excessively horrible, generous visitation rights <laughs> laws in in and custody laws in the twenty fifth twenty fourth century. So, if she let Picard know about him, she may not have legally been able to keep Picard out of his life. But that's a retcon. Yeah. On on the other hand, they could have had him have a son another way, but. Unless they did the clone thing again, which they'd already done in Star Trek Nemesis, then it would involve introducing a new character. And that would tend to either that or you don't ever show his mom, you know, and right. and either and not ever showing his mom, it creates a problem because it's like, okay, so why would it this seems unearned. You know, at yeah. least with at least with Beverly, they had something of a romance in the original series, so that can logically be paid off with them having a child. It would seem illogical if, oh, here's Carol Marcus, a woman we've never heard of before, <laughs> and and yeah. you've got a son we never heard of before, and go and you don't want to go to that well too many times. That's true. And, and if they introduced her as an ongoing character, it would take focus away from the main cast, which is the center of this season. And we there would be all kinds of questions like, why would Picard become involved with a woman like this who's going to keep his son secret from him? So it's, I agree, it's, it's a flaw. What they did is flawed. I think some of the alternatives also would be flawed. And I'm kind of at this point willing to just kind of go with it, even though I recognize it's flawed. Because in the end, it, it works pretty well. Like the, the, the yes, the, uh, the would Beverly, does it make sense for Beverly to have done this? Maybe, maybe not. But in the end, the season works out pretty well regardless. So, yeah. Um, all right. And our next feedback comes uh, on our episode where we talked about the original series episode, The Alternative Factor. And this comes from Robert Osborne on YouTube who wrote, uh, I really like this episode. I don't have the appropriate background, so I didn't really notice the flaws in the science. I thought it was very classic type sci-fi and fun to watch. Keep up the great work, guys. Really cool podcast. Also love the Doctor Who one you do. Excellent. Now, I, I, I appreciate Robert's feedback, and what would be really funny is if he had sent us a second message from the same account <laughs> saying, I need to urgently inform you that the other Robert Osborne is an imposter and is, <laughs> is built on destroying all life everywhere. Please do not listen to his lies. We must take <laughs> urgent action against him. That would have been completely in keeping with the story. That, that would have been good. Missed opportunities. But thank you anyway, Robert. Uh, and then uh, we have another feedback from this one on our 
just discovery in general. And this comes from uh, a loyal Catholic on YouTube. That's their their screen name. And they write, I didn't realize you stopped reviewing Star Trek Discovery. Honestly, in a way, I don't blame you. But on the other hand, it might be good from the point of view of consistency to review it anyways, since a, as podcasters slash journalists, you should evaluate the, the Star Trek franchise in its entirety, warts and all. Um, so, well, I'm not a journalist and nobody's <laughs> paying me to do this. So if you want to pay me to review <laughs> Star Trek Discovery, I'm open and we can talk price. <laughs> there you go. And I did explain in a response to uh, to, to Loyal Catholic that uh, Father Corey and I did do a one-episode overview review of Season 4 of Discovery that uh, we recently uh, released. So in case you haven't seen or heard that one, you can yeah. go check that out. But um, yeah, life's too short to spend every week complaining about how awful a show is, you know. Uh, unless just, you pay me, <laughs> well, unless you pay, unless you pay us, even then you'd have to. It'd have to be a pretty good pay raise <laughs> to, to do that. Um, yeah. yeah, So, but thank you for for uh, wanting to hear what we have to say. In regardless, and that does it for our feedback. And now I would like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Jedediah H, Arthur B, Edward C, Patricia T, and Aaron V. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest, and you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edited this episode. So that's it from us. What did you think of this Enterprise story, Oasis? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com, or visit our Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. And you can watch The Secrets of Star Trek on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia, where you should always subscribe and always hit the bell to get notifications. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the season premiere of the second season of Strange New World. That's right. It's already here. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, are your sensors calibrated for ghosts? <laughs> <laughs>